0: TV comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. Trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. Fantastic! So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic.
1: Incoming.
2: GGACP IMF transmission.
1: Good morning, podcast listener. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to play and enjoy the following interview with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol director Brad Bird and composer Michael Giacchino. As always, should any of your fellow listeners be caught or killed, my co host and I will disavow all knowledge of your actions.
2: Transmission complete. Begin program.
1: Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santopadre. We're pleased to have two guests this week, both responsible for helping to create some of the best and most memorable TV viewing and movie-going experiences of the last 25 years. Brad Bird is an animator, screenwriter, producer, voice actor, occasional TV host, and the two-time Academy Award-winning director. A former boy wonder who started working for Walt Disney Studios at the tender age of 14. He would go on to work on the features The Fox and the Hound, and to our surprise even though it's in his credit he never worked on the black cauldron <laughs> uh, i i gave i wanted to give him credit for it please don't but he said no i didn't do that and then he would write and direct <laughs> the classic family dog episode of steven spielberg's amazing stories and he would serve an executive consultant on the classic shows The Simpsons and King of the Hill, and serve as a member of the senior creative team on Pixar films like Toy Story 3, Brave, Inside Out, and Finding Dory. But it's his work as a writer-director that's brought him international acclaim, creating immensely popular entertainments like The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, The Incredibles 2, Ratatouille, Tomorrowland, and Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol. And in 2020, he was named the newest host of Turner classic movie series, The Essentials. And he's going to tell us why, like yours truly, he also loves Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. And our returning champion, Michael G. Aquino, is a musician, a composer for feature films and television and video games, who has received an Academy Award, a Primetime Emmy, and three Grammy Awards for his work. You've heard his competition on TV shows His like- competition? You've heard it. I like his competition. We'll get through this. I never liked Michael that much, <laughs> but his competition I
3: thought was now,
0: very now, now, now you think- sound like my mother. <laughs>
3: yeah. He is he's trained for incompetence. Yeah. The- <laughs> The people
1: he's up against, I think, are immensely talented. <laughs> Michael, I always thought was shit. Uh, that's just that's just uh, that's just my opinion. I I just uh, Michael, I never liked you, and if you want to walk out now, you can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Frank, you didn't tell me my mom was going to be on the oh. show. <laughs> <laughs> and you've
1: heard his compositions on TV shows like Alias and Lost and in the blockbuster film Star Trek, Star Trek Beyond, The Incredibles, The Incredibles 2, War for the Planet of the Apes, Doctor Strange, Jurassic World, Speed Racer, Star Wars, Rogue One. Jojo Rabbit, Coco, and Up, for which he took home a well-deserved Oscar, I didn't think so. (laughs) (laughs) For, For best original score. Well, I I never thought the voting was fair, uh, <laughs> but the people he was up against, I thought were amazing, and he's now hard at work on the 2022 features, Jurassic World Domination,
4: or do, or Dominion, Dominion. <laughs>
1: And he's hard at... I don't give a fuck what his films are. (laughs) He's hard at work on the 2022 features Jurassic World, Dominion, and The Batman. And he's also written and arranged and conducted music for dozens of video games, short films and TV movies, and in 2005, he created new soundtracks for Disney theme park rides. And all these years later, he still can't uh, understand whatever possessed him to wear a red Star Trek shirt to his first day of school. And, uh, oh, and in case I didn't say, I never thought his work was all that good. (laughs) And and his competition, I think, is amazing. They deserve (laughs) awards. Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show Edna Mode and Stormtrooper FN3181. Brad Bird and Michael
0: G. Aquino. Hello, hello, hello. Ooh, wow. What, what, a, what an intro. <laughs> that, was, that, that was amazing. What an intro. <laughs> I mean, jeez. Have you ever been so flattered by an intro, Mike? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I've never seen so many compliments. Not, I've, I haven't seen compliments like that since, you know. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving time at home. <laughs> well,
4: you've never been on a subject at a Comedy Central roast, so this is as close as it's going to come.
0: No, I'll <laughs> take and, it.
1: And Brad, unlike uh, Michael, I'm a fan of your work.
0: It's going to be a running joke. But, <laughs> but, but my
3: competition... But my competition was terrible. <laughs> oh, because so, because yeah, he I'm couldn't
0: read the intro, this is now going to be a, a, That's an right. ongoing joke. That's right. He won't let it go
4: now. Maybe we should give some thought to shortening the intros. What do you think? <laughs> Either that or make the type bigger. <laughs> hey, Gil, When, when Mike, Brad, when Mike Reese was here, Gilbert gave him a lot of shit for never having him on The Simpsons. And Gilbert, Brad worked on The Simpsons for eight years.
3: But I was not in a position of power for signing up voice. There you artists. go. You, you, you sound like a Nazi at the trials. I, I, uh, I had yeah. no idea
1: of the atrocities taking
3: place. Yeah. So now I feel, I feel like I fit right in. Listen, we have our
4: first edit already.
3: that was your first
1: (laughs) i watched mission impossible 4 and it's it's Uh very exciting and fun but do you know what the plot is yeah i know what the plot
3: is (laughs) (laughs) do you want me to use this valuable airtime to Uh, explain it to you i think he got a little lost
1: (laughs) i uh, Yeah. yeah
3: Well, that's uh, not unusual in a Mission Impossible movie. They are uh, uh, somewhat um, convoluted uh, scripts, usually um, multifaceted. They're like complicated machines. And um, they, for some reason, they are constantly rewriting the script constantly as you make them. So a lot of times you don't have all the answers when you start the movie and, and you try to find them in some way. By the end, you know, and uh, we certainly had our share on on that movie. Um I wish that uh, our villain was a little better figured out, but um we had some really good ideas that didn't pan out, and we had to go with what we had
1: it's it's kind of like um, well, like they asked the filmmakers of the big sleep uh, if they could oh yeah, exploring... that was very
3: famous, yeah. And they couldn't. they said, we don't know. Well, they asked him who the murderer was. Yeah, and uh, of one of the characters, they said, "So and so is murdered. Who killed him?" And they went to Raymond Chandler, who wrote the book, and he went, "That beats me." You know. <laughs> uh, so and Big Sleep is beloved. So there oh, it you is. Go. It's
4: great. It's great. So Gilbert, it's, it's suffice it to say, you had some issues following the storyline.
1: Uh, Yes, yeah. I was lost in the first 15 minutes. I liked watching it. But not unlike this interview. Just like (laughs) it.
4: Art imitates art.
1: (laughs) And unlike every, I mean, every actor claims he does his own stunts. But Uh uh, Tom Cruise actually does, it seems.
3: He actually does, and that's actually him uh, on a mile above the earth on the Burj, and uh, he was uh, quite comfortable up there, surprisingly incredible, so. Incredible, Um Yeah, and, and uh, the stunt guys say that, you know, if he weren't, you know, a really successful actor, he would be the best stunt man in the world, because he understands stunts really well and understands how to make them look cool on the screen, and he... He believes, and I do too, that uh, audiences can tell when it's all CG and they're not really in danger, you know, or not really at the place they're supposed to be. And, and I, I agree with that assessment. And so I was really lucky on my first film to have somebody that was willing to do that who was a big star. I mean, who else can you name like that?
1: I mean, a couple of times I've been in uh, TV shows. Where they got stuntmen who are like six foot four and muscle bound, who are wearing my shirt and pants, and it's like, <laughs> and it's like you go, oh yeah, that's Gilbert Gottfried. I love when
4: the stuntman, yeah, like the later Bond, the later Roger Moore Bonds, where they make no effort for the stuntman to resemble to to resemble Roger Moore,
0: <laughs> like in A View to a Kill. Brad, was there ever a, a discussion about not doing it with him? Or was there any ever, you know, did that ever happen?
3: Uh, not doing it with Tom? Not not having him do the stunt. Uh, there was, no, there was never. Tom, you know, lives for those kind of movie moments. And once they decided to shoot on the Burge, he was not only up for it, he was excited about it.
1: But it's like... A studio that has, like, billions of dollars,
3: yeah, it's wouldn't odd.
1: they be scared letting them do that?
3: Yeah, and there was one night when we were shooting it where, you know, it was 2 o'clock in the morning and I just woke up like, Ugh! you know, because I realized that, you know, my star was dangling by a thin uh, wire, you know, uh, about a mile. I mean, it's hard to imagine how big that building, how tall it really is because... Um, you would look down significantly on. Uh, it's almost twice as tall as the Empire State State Building, so planes fly below the top floors. Good lord! You know? Yeah, wow! It's 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 unbelievable. So we can assume and, he did every
4: other stunt too. The the, the, the where at the in the climax where the car drives off the elevator platform, and
3: there is there is a, a couple of uh, shots where it's too dangerous for Tom. Uh huh. And they add up to about two and a half seconds. Wow. They are literally quick inserts where you show a body bouncing off the hood of the car, and there's another one where he had to drop and hit an edge. And literally, they're they're that long. But in both cases, the stunt man injured himself, and so it's like that's why they didn't have him do it. But they none of the stuff that. And the audience would never see those moments and go, "That's the most amazing stunt I've ever seen." They're good, but um, the the ones that everyone believe are can, they can't be Tom are Tom. You know, that's incredible. And, uh, incredible. So yeah, it is incredible.
1: And I heard he he was hurt, it, I, not this
3: one or no, the last a few one. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he didn't. Um, he he snapped his. His ankle hit, hit or his something. Knee. His
0: knee, real bad. He hit I his, think it was knee. his knee,
3: and the funny thing is, is the shot where that happens is in the movie because he knew something was wrong, so he made sure he completed the take. He kept, he got, he got it, got the injury, and then started to run again. And he, and when they wrapped it, uh, when when they completed the shot and said cut. Everyone knew he was injured, and he said, did you get it? Because I can't do it again, you know? And they said, it's in It's in the movie, you know? Wow. And yeah, so they had to stop filming for a while and let him heal up. But that's him, and he injured himself, and
0: it it hurts. Like when you when you see that shot, when you see that scene, it it looks painful. Yeah,
3: well, too. I mean, it, it's not. It was because he's jumping. That's across when that. he's
1: leaping from one building to the next. Yeah, and he, yeah. he yeah. barely exactly.
3: catches the edge of the other building, and and you can. It looks painful, like Giacchino said. Yeah, uh, and so there you go. That's what uh, that's the kind of dedicated guy he is. <laughs> Mike, what were you saying?
4: Were you you were saying that you wanted to see Brad direct something that big? You were making some David Lean comparisons and he said, "Stop saying that. You're putting too much pressure on me."
0: Do you have any memory do you have any memory of that? I mean, we we have these kind of conversations all the time he and I and 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 you know, I'm always happy to push him comfortably or uncomfortably into whatever direction is most entertaining for me. So I right. always, yeah. And I keep <laughs> saying, can't
3: we double the size of the orchestra? And Michael goes, <laughs> it's 113 pieces. <laughs> you really wouldn't hear it. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> uh, uh, uh.
4: Doing research, by the way, on Mission Impossible. Uh, and I, I love the names. I assume you're, you're the one coming up with all the names for these these tracks, Mike. Well Give, give her my Budapest and the Yakov Smirnov <laughs> yeah. homage in Russia phone dials you.
3: <laughs> every. every- Every movie, every movie. If you look at the soundtrack, every yeah. cue is like that. Yeah. Well,
0: I, I will tell you one thing about that. Like that is a group effort, and that is a group effort between me and my music editors, and the music editors uh, uh, Stephen Davis and Paul Applegren, deliver quite a lot of amazing. And amazing actually, content. anybody
3: that's in the vicinity that has a bad pun really gets. Yeah, a shot. whoever
0: has the the best worst <laughs> pun gets it. So it's it's really it's just a I little contest. My
4: my favorite is Mumbai's the word. And a man, a man, a plan, a
0: code, Dubai. <laughs> yeah, there's some good ones on T- that.
4: Tomorrowland as well. They're on. To, they're, they're on that. But you know, it was
0: when we did Star Wars. There was a point. So we're doing Star Wars, and we're working. And as the, the, you know, I only had four and a half weeks to do that movie. So we were just heads down doing the work and doing the titles as we normally would. But at some point, while we were recording, it was like sort of, oh wait, are they going to let us do goofy titles for a Star Wars movie? You know, and sure enough, they didn't. They didn't. They 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 preferred if we kept them more serious. So, uh, for Star Wars, on the inside booklet of the CD, there's an alternate track list with our titles, but the outer uh, uh, cover has the the normal titles. You know, I mean, I was like, what do you? What are we gonna do? Name something? You know, I don't know. Such and such blows up, or you know, another you know, chase through something. I, I don't know. So the track titles. Are yeah. Also another
3: chase through something. I think it'd be a the
0: title. <laughs>
1: they, they sound like, they sound like the titles of three stooges. Yeah. 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 Right.
4: They do. Yeah. yeah. What, what an Eiffel from uh, Tomorrowland was also a yes. favorite.
0: <laughs> yes. Gilbert, you're a sucker for a pun. Oh, Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have to, it's so weird there's been like articles written about it it's 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 so strange. vanity fair did an article about the the puns uh so you can look those up and, and and get a lot of the history out of that but it is it's been and actually there are some fans who hate it there are some fan like i remember when star trek came out when that when that uh soundtrack came out there were a it was a good group of people that were very upset that we we were sort of having fun with the titles. And they were like, does he not take his job seriously? What is this all about? Why can't he just (laughs) name it normally? Wow. Like like I'm ruining their childhood by, you know, I don't know. So it's it's a, entertainment is a fickle thing when it comes to the fans. What Michael Caton (laughs) used to
4: call the pop culture fundamentalists. Yes, yes. Yeah, they take it very seriously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brad, I'm going to forget to ask this later, but so since we already brought up David Lean and I wrote down, please tell us something about working with the great Peter O'Toole and Ratatouille.
3: Oh, well, I mean, that's one of the highlights of my life. Um, You know, not unlike Michael on Rogue One, I was not the original guy on uh, uh, Ratatouille. And um, they had already cast somebody in that role. And um, I was rewriting the script down to the studs. I mean, I just started from scratch Mm -hmm. using the storyline that we had all sort of, that Jan had originated and we had all been working on. But, uh, I saw, I heard a different person for that character and they had already kind of gone a little bit down the road with this other person who I think is great, but I didn't hear him for that role. And, you know, there's something just, you know, uh, Dominating about Peter O'Toole's voice, and uh, I just thought it'll, you know, it needs to hang over this movie in in a way. And so I asked him, and he had only done one other animated thing in his life, and it didn't. He kind of disdained it, and he sounded kind of like he was picking a piece of lint off his shoulder. And he goes, "Eh, "I think I did some sort of Nutcracker once." you know, and he, and he, and, and, and it was literally like he had, you know, was trying to get some stain off of his jacket. And I, I just, you know, said, come on, man, this will be amazing. The character bookends the movie. He hangs over it, you know, it winds up in his court. You know, you gotta, you know, please. I mean, I'm imagining you. I'll be so disappointed if we don't get you. And he agreed to do it and he ended up having a, a fantastic time on it. And I think that that, uh, review that he does at the end, um, one of the highlights of my life was writing that and rewriting it on the plane and rewriting it again in the hotel and right up until the moment that I gave it to him and, and him getting it and really loving it and, and loving the fact that he got to, um, have that moment because it kind of, it's probably the most memorable thing in the film, strangely, Because it's not an action scene or anything. It's just a guy talking while you look at people having trouble sleeping. Um, It's the anti-finale of all the rules of what you're supposed to do in a finale and in a summer film and in animation were broken by that. You know, you're supposed to get loud and fast at the end. And here's a scene that got slow and quiet. It's quite beautiful. but uh, he did it better than I could possibly imagine it being done. And and so it was really a thrill. I mean, he's like royalty to me.
4: Yeah, well, you're right, because you're such a lean buff and such a, a Lawrence of Arabia lover.
1: And Peter O'Toole, he's one of those, yes. like, legendary drinkers. They always, when they talk about <sighs> drinkers, I mean, the one name you'll hear first is Peter O'Toole. Did you And ever Oliver witnessed- Reed
3: and Richard Burton, sure. those guys. Yes, and, uh, yeah. Richard Harris. Sure, those four are the big knock about London. You know, tanked guys. Did you
1: ever witness it on the set, like during no. his working?
3: No, he was he was in a uh, you know he'd been around a while by that point and had settled down, but he had stories that would just make your jaw drop on the floor. <laughs> I Can mean, imagine he had the best <laughs> stories ever. Yeah,
0: ha, ha. you went to London to record him, right? Yes. Where did you go? Yeah, and I do you remember setting up your thing? Like, on you set up your FaceTime so that I could, you know, listen into the session when you were recording him. Oh yeah, if yeah. You remember, yeah, so I remember sitting in my office listening to you record him for the film, and it was just even from what six thousand miles away for me, it was like incredible just to hear that voice and and know that you know. Uh, I could hear that being done live and hear you talking to him. That was just such a special thing. Like I'll never forget that.
2: The world is often unkind to new talent, new creations. The new needs friends. Last night I experienced something new, an extraordinary meal from a singularly unexpected source. To say that both the meal and its maker have challenged my preconceptions about fine cooking is a gross understatement. They have rocked me to my core. In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Gusto's famous motto, Anyone can cook. But I realize only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. It is difficult to imagine more humble origins than those of the genius now cooking at Gusteau's, who is, in this critic's opinion, nothing less than the finest chef in France. I will be returning to Gusteau's soon, hungry for more.
3: And he did this weird thing where he would clear his voice. He would go, right before they recorded, he'd go, (laughs) blah! And uh, I'd I'd go, whoa, you know? And everybody would kind of jump that wasn't ready used to him, uh, um, which is most of us. We'd, you know? And he'd go, Audrey
0: Hepburn taught me that.
3: You know, she did it while we were doing a film on Two for the Road or something like that. And, uh... He said, "She suddenly went brah," and uh, I said, "What is oh, Good Lord!" And she said, "You know, it helps me get you know centered into the scene and focus. So I've used it ever since, you know. And I actually, I actually used one of his bras in the film where uh, uh, Ego—he has uh, Linguini has a nightmare about Ego." And then he snaps, uh, he says, I want your heart on a steak or something like that. And then he starts laughing. And then as, as uh, Linguini wakes up, I use the brah and I echoed it in all, in all of the speakers so that it, in the theater it was like brah, you know. And uh, it was, uh, I'm the first one to get his brah on film.
4: Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I love, I love that he got it from
3: Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, I know. The least likely person you would ever get that sound from.
1: <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor.
4: Brad, Gilbert was on The Essentials way back with our friend Robert Osborne, who we had here on the the podcast. And we also had Ben Mankiewicz here a couple of weeks ago. But Gilbert, tell uh,
1: tell Brad your picks. That was, first of all, it's one of those jobs that didn't feel like work at all. No, it's great. You're in an easy chair with Bob Osborne and uh, sitting back talking
3: movies. I know. It's kind of like you should pay them.
1: Yes, yes. It was like when it was over, and it was one of those jobs when it ended, and they said, that's a wrap. I thought, no, I want to, like, sit some more and talk.
3: We barely covered all of film history. Yes. (laughs) Gail, Gail, tell them the ones you picked.
1: (laughs) The ones I picked, well, they were Freaks. Todd Browning. Todd Browning,
3: yeah. Yeah.
1: And um, The Conversation... Coppola. It's a good one. And, and the original of Mice and Men with Chaney and Burgess Meredith.
3: Is that John Ford?
4: Uh, Louis no, Milestone. Who is it? Yes.
3: Milestone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster. Wow. That's a
4: weird one to pick. It's a weird one. It's a eclectic yeah. collection of, of films.
3: Yeah. I saw that film, you know, in the middle of the night back when you had to stay up to watch weird films. You yes. know? Yes. And I uh, I would oftentimes switch over to that before I turned off the TV, and a couple of times they got me. You know, I saw Vertigo that way. I saw, uh, and I saw. um, uh, Was a Stairway
4: to Heaven the Michael the Powell Stairway to Heaven? Yes, the Michael
3: Powell uh, film. And they, it's just like you're like I'm going to bed, but you turn the opening of a film like grabs you and gets you. And I thought that Burt Lancaster one was so weird. You know, it's, Buried. is it a John up, up, I, think or, where's up the story? An,
4: I think it's Cheever. I think Cheever,
3: it's, a John Cheever. That's
4: it. it's a John Cheever story, but, but Stairway to heaven is a movie more people need to know about. Well, it was under the other title. What is a matter of life and death? Yes. Beautiful. Film. It's
1: also with the swimmer. When he explains that he's going to swim in everyone's swimming pool, as an imaginary river and he'll swim home in, I remember when I heard that, I thought it was also late at night, and I thought, "All right, I'm
3: in." Yeah, it's so weird, but that's what that's what you know. People think that because I evangelize, I evangelize about going to movie theaters and having that experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm I sort of bemoan the fact that it seems to be disappearing for the moment, anyway. Yeah, uh, but um, there are those experiences where the television is is a really intimate way to discover a film. And, you know, if it can be that, then it's great. But I don't want it to become, instead of, you know, gathering in the dark with strangers and watching it on a big screen without being able to stop.
1: This I ask both of you now, because I really do think uh, going to the theater to see a movie is dead now. I I, I don't like it, but it seems to be dead.
0: Well, L.A. just uh, suffered suffered a blow.
3: I don't think so.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to come back.
3: Um, I think that there are two ways to respond to this. One is to shrug and give up. And the other one is to say, let's take this opportunity to improve the movie experience a thousand percent. Because we've taken uh, paper cuts to the movie experience for the last 40 years. And the only thing that's really gotten better is, is sound, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's sort of indisputable. I mean, every film is in stereo now, which is amazing. But uh, other, every other part of the experience, the fact that nobody has curtains anymore, which is a gesture of showmanship – Sure. Uh, the fact that they they project ads on on a screen as the audience is gathering that's kind of like taking a leak on the screen as far as I'm concerned because it's making it like home yes and then uh, and then having multiplexes where the largest audit- auditoriums are maybe two or three hundred seats instead of giant movie theaters where you have a gi- gigantic audience response um, there are different reasons for all these things how they happened. But it all amounts to a diminishing of the theatrical experience. I agree. Yeah. Anyway. No, I
1: always when when I would go to the movies and you'd be sitting there waiting, and then you go, "Oh, wait a second! Did the theater just get slightly darker now?" And that would mean like, "Oh, it's starting." Yeah.
3: Yeah. That was oh, exciting. Yeah. The
4: moment of anticipation.
3: And, yeah. And when you saw trailers, um, they were not micro targeted. Right now, if you go to see, like, a horror movie, every trailer you see before that horror movie will be for other horror movies. And it makes it, it's kind of like giving people tiny hamburgers before they eat a hamburger. It's like, <laughs>
4: That's like, you know what I mean?
3: It's yes. like you have no appetite for it by the time the movie starts because you've seen every cliche horror movie moment in the trailers. Uh, you know, the being yanked under the bed or whatever, <laughs> you know, the the turning around and the thing is behind you, you know. I mean, all those shots, which still work, um, are in the trailers. And then, you know, you're supposed to get it up again for the for the movie at that point? Good point.
1: You've already seen somebody open a window or move something and a cat jumps out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
3: All of those golden...
0: cliches i would also say that i I was just going to say that even in terms of trailers they're very assaultive now too yes it it, there's nothing about storytelling in them at all it's just a series of shots and sounds and it's as loud as it can possibly be until you just go okay i give up i'll go see it i i'll go just stop just stop making noise and that's what
3: well and they give away too much of the plot yeah. You know, I yeah. remember seeing that uh, movie with Sam Jackson called The Negotiator. And I'm watching the trailer and it shows, you know, this is the setup. And I'm like, I'm so into this movie. I'm going. And they actually talked me out of it by the end of the trailer because they told me too deep into the act two that the Sam Jackson character and the negotiator joined powers. And to I- me, that's a middle of second act. Kind of reveal, uh-huh. and I don't now. I don't care now. now you don't I mean, need you to told see me too much, and forget it. I I heard a story that
1: Mel Brooks was in a movie theater, and they were doing one of those like uh, where they were screaming out all the names. You know, it's like uh, uh, Robert De Niro, Sylvester Stallone, Christopher Walken, and Mel Brooks said, "Who's arguing?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, exactly. that's exactly right, Mike. That's are it. you are you <laughs> as
4: optimistic as Brad is on this subject? We just we just got the, the gut punch of the uh, of
0: the yeah, uh, Cinerama I, I Dome. Well, yes, but I refuse to believe. I won't even let myself believe that that will be let to just die. You know, I feel like someone has to come in and take care of that theater, and and I believe it will happen. You know, it's just too important. Um, I hope so. And I hope I'm not wrong. But but I, I feel like, I know that even with my kids and stuff, like, they're, they cannot wait to go back to a movie theater. They want to. They want to, you know, of course, everyone wants to feel safe. We all want that. But I, they can't wait to get back and do those kinds of things. I can't wait to get back into a movie theater, especially a big one, something like the Cinerama Dome. So, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it better survive.
4: We hoped somebody was going to take by the Ziegfeld up here in New York years ago, and it unfortunately, well, yeah. you know, it wasn't rescued. So I, I, no. I, I'm pessimistic.
1: And I don't think there'll ever be those old, beautiful theaters no. anymore with the statues and... The-
0: yeah, you might have yeah, one or two. You might have one or two, but it's not going to be like it used to be. Even downtown L.A., there are so many beautiful theaters in downtown still L.A. Still standing, yeah, still standing, and they're just used as film sets, and they use them for TV shows, and they use them for filming and things like that, but rarely for movie theaters. But it's amazing how many are still there. Is know? the Orpheum still there? Because they used to
4: show—they would show silent films there when I was in LA in the nineties with with an I with think a, so with an accompanist. Yeah,
3: but a lot downtown. of downtown they yeah. do yeah.
0: concerts and things like that there instead. They do this
3: know? program called the the best remaining seats. That's right, and I remember that. They show they show great movies one night only at and, and they're trying to to kind of say we have these great theaters here. They're, they still exist you know, let's, you know, resurrect them, you know, do something. But, you know, there become other issues like, uh, you know, um, the sound bounces around those, those, uh, really elaborate theaters a lot. And you have to do a lot to get the sound to be able to handle all the speaker systems that they, that, uh, modern movies have. And, um, they also, you know, it's downtown, you know, parking is hard. And so there are other problems, but I agree with you and and I feel like uh I feel like there's an a, another movement that could happen where where we resurrect Let's and hope. exalt the movie experience. I don't ever think it's going to be like it was in terms of the numbers. Sure. But I I do feel like there's an opportunity here. Uh, to turn it around and, and make presentation king again. I, I remember
1: on, I think it was 2nd Avenue and 14th Street. I forget the name of the theater. And I imagine it was probably like one of the original, like, Yiddish theaters. Because uh, 2nd really? Avenue had... And, and they just showed porn. Yeah, oh,
4: some of those, whenever. some of those old, yeah, some of those old theaters downtown on the east side became movie theaters, and then they fell into disrepair.
3: Well, that's, that's been See going now, on here nobody had decades. the vision for Yiddish porn. That's right. Yeah,
4: you know? I was going to say, was it Yiddish porn? <laughs> <laughs> Brad, I loved how many musicals you chose too on TCM. Uh, like, I know, like, like the Red Shoes and 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 Singing in the Rain, and that leads me to a question you guys probably can't answer, but there is there is some talk afoot of the two of you collaborating on something of a musical nature. Can you say anything about it?
3: Yeah, we can, we can acknowledge that. Yeah. We can acknowledge we thought it would be a little easier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard.
0: No, we didn't. We knew that it was hellaciously hard.
3: I thought we'd uh, be uh, done by now. (laughs) (laughs) We, we, we both had this idea that, um, musicals are amazing, but there's only a handful of great ones. It's true. There there are not that many. And the reason is they're really hard to do well. I mean, most of the great ones, practically every song is a great song, and every number behind that song is a great number. And that's kind of what makes them great. Um, But uh, I think that the fact that it scares both of us a lot um, is kind of the reason we want to do it.
0: Good for I you. think the bar the bar we're holding ourselves to is pretty damn high. So it is it is some one of those things that it's it's one of the hardest things that I I've ever worked on in in some time. You know, in terms of just trying to figure it out, what's working, what's not working, and everything. Every time you think you have it working, every time you think you lay it out, and you're all like, "There it is, there it is. That's okay. Let's just do that." And then that doesn't work. But you know, and but you're just, most
3: most people that do musicals now. Uh, want a pre-pre loved soundtrack, so so you know they'll get somebody like uh, Billy Joel or, or whoever who has a catalog, and they'll just say we're going to wrap a story around all these Billy Joel hits, right. for like example. a jukebox
4: musical on Broadway. Yeah,
3: and 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 they that that's what gives them the courage to make the musical is the fact that the songs are already loved. Nobody's going to yeah. have a problem with the songs, but to me. The the if you really want to uh, you know uh, scare yourself uh, go to try to make an original musical that that can stand alongside, you know, the great ones without looking like a, you know, a bad cousin or something.
0: Yeah, you could argue that what we're doing is no different than what Tom Cruise does when he goes and stands out a mile (laughs) above the earth, right? You could!
1: (laughs) (laughs) And do you think audiences nowadays, that audiences nowadays uh, might get a little too snide and cynical... So if somebody, uh, an actor, sure. starts singing, they'll go, what? That's ridiculous. He's standing well, in the street Well, I, I think seat.
3: that it's, it, it's incumbent upon us to be a step ahead of that and take the piss out of it in any way that we can by making it too fun to, to yeah. be able to resist. Um, I think that um, humor is, is one of the key components in every musical that I love. And um, I think that that's one of the, the keys to getting it to work. Um, it's not the only key, but it's, uh, it, you know, it helps a lot. You, oh. it, it helps you buy crazy things.
4: Your, your old boss at The Simpsons, as you know, Brad, uh, had it, made a musical and wound up taking the songs J- Jim out Jim Brooks, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll, he had I'll, one
3: with I'll, Prince music, yeah.
4: I'll do anything. And it broke my heart when the test audiences just... You know, they, they uh they I guess they uh, they put a scare into him and he wound up taking the songs out.
3: Right. Does that does that version exist? Somewhere. Yeah, it hasn't been burned.
1: I'd love to
4: see it. Yeah, me too. I know,
1: I would too. Here's a pet peeve of mine. It's usually in romantic comedies, not musicals. But like like say for instance, I think it was my best friend's wedding. And everybody at the dinner table sings, uh, I say a little prayer for you. And I'm going, now, in real life, people don't know all the words to a song. <laughs> And you know, in real
3: life, it's I say so. You have come up with a radical idea—the first mumbly musical where no one knows the words.
0: It'll make
3: our job a lot easier. I would go out with that tomorrow, man. It's a pandemic audience; they're tired. They will roll with it.
4: Brad, what did you mean when you said that music was the fastest way to derail a film?
3: Well, uh, it's because. Wait, can we make... put this in
0: context? All can right, we put this wait, in context? A,
3: second. wait a second. Go ahead.
0: Go ahead. Let put we it in context. Should put, we should put this in context. <laughs> I'll this is, put it in context
3: let's, first. You always. Well, put you it could do context.
0: it. You could. No, no, no. Because then you kill the story <laughs> if you do that. All right. So, so here's the deal. So. Uh, but way back it was, was two thousand three, maybe I guess, uh four. I don't know. But uh so I had not yet done a movie that was actually on a screen in a theater that you know, I was still trying to to leap uh from television and get that that gig. And uh I met with Brad about the Incredibles. You know, I had been working on a show called Alias for ABC sure. and Disney at the time. And uh and for whatever reason the the slot opened up uh, for a composer on The Incredibles. And Brad met with me. We had a great first meeting. I went up to Pixar. We ended up talking for a long time about things like Johnny Quest and Hoyt Curtin and, and Hanna-Barbera. Just, uh, we were just having this animation geek fest together because I, I love it so much, and obviously he does. And uh, and I left there feeling really good, like I I loved that meeting. I thought this guy seems really great. And weeks go by, you know, you know, I'm like uh, waiting to hear if I'm gonna get this movie or not. And 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 day after day, I'm like nothing, no one's calling. And every once in a while, I would check in with his assistant. She was like, I'm so sorry, nothing to report yet. Blah blah blah. I don't know. Three three weeks go by. Finally, the phone rings and it's Brad, and he's like, Hey, it's Bird. And I'm like, hey, Brad, how are you? And he's like, listen, I, uh, I want to tell you, you got the job. And I was like, oh, my God, this is great, because I, I absolutely love the movie. I love what Pixar has done. So I just thought, this is crazy. And he goes, well, but, but, you know, hold on a second. I just got to say a couple things first. <laughs> and he goes, I want to tell you, this is going to be the hardest job you've ever had. And I was like, that's fine. I'm game for that. I don't mind working hard. I expect that. And he goes, and? And I just have to say that your music could ruin my movie. <laughs> and I was like, and I and I, and, and I I remember just sort of holding the phone, you know, where you pull it away from your head, like, hey, what, am I still on the same call? Uh. <laughs> you know. And he said, "What I mean, what I mean is this." He goes, "If you and I are not in lockstep every step of the way during the making of this movie, then the, the telling of the is story."
3: the telling, yeah, and the of, the telling of the story right.
0: that the audience is going to start thinking things. We don't want them to think or feeling things we don't want them to feel. So it's very important that you and I are always 100% together on this road, in in terms of telling the story, you know, so, so it went from a, 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 a big, WTF moment to oh yeah well yeah that makes sense that makes a lot of sense okay now he's he's absolutely right (laughs) point counterpoint
3: (laughs) yeah it's actually it doesn't derail his but here's what I what I meant when I said that is that the movie making process is this unbelievably long and complicated process from the initial idea toward toward battling it out toward testing all the ideas meaning do they hold water when put with all the other ideas, all of that, it's like this itchy, horrible suit that they put on you, and they say, this is, the, this is your suit, you know, this is the suit that you described to us, and you go, it's horrible, it's heavy, it's itchy, it looks like shit, and they go, well, that's what you described, and then you go, no. Okay, first of all, we gotta change this, then we gotta change that, then we gotta make it lighter, Pretty soon after years of this, you get a really kind of snazzy-looking suit, and it kind of cuts you off, makes you look even a little trimmer than you are, and it feels good, and you, you like it's nice to wear, and you got it all nice, and then you hand it to the composer. You're almost done. You're ready to wear this suit out into the world. And you hand it to the composer, and the composer can undo all of that in very little time. By being by doing the wrong music for this thing and they can unmake a movie. you know they have too much power late in the game and and you know what I'm saying it's yeah. it's late. almost everything is done and that's when they get it and it's literally like they get to open the patient's you know chest and go into all of the body parts and that are functioning <laughs> and mess around a bit. And uh, the the thing is, is that you know, if they do a good job, which Michael always does, then it makes the 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 thing better than it ever had a right to be. It's just fantastic. It's the musical identity is inseparable from the movie, and it becomes this complete, whole, magnificent thing. But what I'm saying is, composers come in late to the process. They they come for how much power they have over the movie experience it's frightening that they come in at the very end you know and they hold all of that power in their hands and you're just sitting there going "Ah," you know
0: (laughs) the trick the trick the the trick is it's like i'm really coming at it from the same place you are right you know from the mind from like a filmmaking mind you know as a like i'm not just like a guy who who studied music and thought, "Oh well, that sounds like a good job." I'm going to try and get a job. No, you're a storyteller for, for movies. Got it right. You know, I grew up making movies. That's what I love doing, and and I went to film school. Frank, as you know, this. Yes. So 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 everything I do is really centered on the story. But I do know people uh, that <clears throat> are more interested in the notes that they're putting down than what it is doing to the picture in front of them. Yes. You know, and he was absolutely right. One false note can get an audience thinking like miles away from where
3: you want them to be. And, and so there you are do movies have to be careful. There are movies that we talk about that we will not mention where they the soundtrack is so wrong that it almost ruins a classic movie. That certain yeah. movies are strong enough to take something that's not that great and they can kind of still manage to get up in the air like that Howard Hughes plane that was like the size of Cleveland, you know, he can like the Spruce Goose. Yeah. (laughs) right, right. Or the Hercules as he liked it to be called. The Hercules. Um, But you know, it's like, it's the size of, you know, Rhode Island and he's got to get it up the water. And we will not mention these movies, but we all have our pet movies. Like I will mention one of them. Okay. If you see, there's one James Bond movie that they made outside of the, the group that oh, made the, all the, the famous the Never ones.
4: Oh, Never, the Never Say Never Again?
3: Yes. And the composer is a good composer named Michel Legrand. Um, but he is absolutely the wrong guy for a Bond film. And you're sitting there thrilled that, John, uh, that Sean Connery is going to do this one more time. And, you know, they spent money on it and they've got good co-stars and the sets look good. And then this music comes in that just seems like it's from some other movie and you go, "What the hell is this?" You know, because that <laughs> sound that John Barry did is right. so embedded into your brain. You know, is, is the sound of Bond that I- anyway, try watching that and just listen to the I'm going to watch music. it now.
4: Cuz now you got to oh. be curious. Yeah, I always so think wrong.
3: when music
1: is done right, it can make you start crying. It can make you oh, yeah. frightened. Every- but boy, when it's done wrong, you go, okay, here's the
3: music. Yeah. Well, you're aware of the strings yeah. Yeah. that they're pulling. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and that can be you know, a couple of things. That could be wrong choices by the composer. Absolutely. It could, could be, be that. Wrong it could be wrong direction, too. A, it could be a story that's not really working in the movie. And you, no matter what you do with the music, there's nothing's going to save it, you know? Right. So it's any number of things that could go wrong. It was like he was saying, there's all these pins that you set up just perfectly. And if one goes down, you know it has yeah. it has a. It has effects. We
4: talked about this the last time you were here. The thing that gets my goat is is manipulative music telling you when the comedy scene has arrived, oh, and yeah. I notice it. I know. I notice it on network television shows, primetime dramas. Yeah, they're the king of it. Where they have to have the comic relief scene, and they start messing around. And again, I won't mention any shows. Uh, uh, they on ABC Primetime and it's been on for medical drama. It's been on for 20 years, but I won't mention it. <laughs> uh, and you start, and you start, they start manipulating you. Here's the laugh. Yeah. Here's, here's the comedy
0: scene. And it makes me insane.
3: Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They also do it in animated films.
0: Oh, they do it all the time in, in animated films. In
3: animated films, they, films you know, they, they do it when they go from the light comedy moments to the the serious moment. They always have the heartfelt moment and the music suddenly does its sad shift. (laughs) And now you're supposed to get the heartfelt moment and it's supposed to move you. And it so doesn't because you feel them twisting the knobs. Well, it's so, and it's what
0: people, one of the questions I get asked the most, probably more than any other question is, it must be very different Scoring an animated film than it is scoring a live action film, or a lot of times they'll say it must be different working on the kids' movies that you do as opposed to sort of the the real movies you know and th- yeah. that's, that's, that's an annoying question because I feel like there is first of all, why is Captain Kirk is no more real than the Remy the Rat like this the, they are both fake you know, things that are up on a a screen that we're watching. The medium is irrelevant. It's, 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 you know, but if you treat them as if they are both real humans, as as real people with emotions and thoughts and, and, and hopes and dreams and all of that, you have a chance of actually bringing the audience in with you, you know, but a lot of people don't do that. They say there's a lot of composers that will get on an animated film and just feel like, Oh, I just have to write goofy music, you know? And, and that's what I do on this. And that's, I, I it's so annoying. It's so annoying. I can't even watch those kinds of movies. By the way, I was
4: glad I asked that question because I got to see Brad get so excited. <laughs> that I, I I got a sense of the way he is in a meeting, in a pitch meeting.
0: <laughs> well, and he has he was bouncing and, and look, he's off the walls. Had to deal with this, <laughs> but he's had to deal with this in terms of I'm sure. you know the, the the relegation of what what people do to animated films. They make the they they, they tend to think they are kids films, you know, and 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 Brad. You go ahead. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Oh, well, you, you know, I mean, I, it's I know every you have very time. specific feelings about this. Well,
3: I mean, I've even had interviewers uh, say, not knowing that they're insulting me, uh, say, you know, you've w- worked a uh, long time in animation. What's it like to do a real movie? You know, when I did <laughs> Ghost Protocol. Wow. What's it like to do a real movie? And and I always would say, you know, ha ha. Uh, Actually, they're all real movies. Some of them are animated, and this one isn't, you know. (laughs) Ha ha! But I'm sitting there wanting to, like, lunge at them.
1: (laughs) We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. I I remember. (laughs) I get it. When they were making all those movies that were trying to be airplanes. And right. they were missing by a thousand right. miles. So when they would do those, they'd hire Leslie Nielsen whenever they could. And in one scene, they're doing the comedy music. And I'm thinking, if you know how to make this kind of film like Airplane, you would be making fun of of comedy music
0: there. Exactly. You wouldn't
1: actually be using it.
0: No, you would be very serious. That's the thing. If you look at, uh, you know, all uh, Elmer Bernstein was one of the greatest sort of composers for comedies. And I always loved it because he treated it all seriously. Animal House, yes. too, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. there, it, it, yeah. it wasn't, he wasn't out there writing goofy music to, to remind you that what you're wa- watching is funny. He was literally following the story and doing what was real. So if it was like a, an, a you know, any, you know, moment was treated with respect and sort of this grandeur that you, that most people just didn't, weren't brave enough to do. I don't know what it was, but he knew how to do it. He was, he was the best. It
3: was, it was the same thing, the same reason why they would hire somebody like Leslie Nielsen and tell him, don't play it like a comedy. Say it as if this is the most serious movie ever. And the lines are absurd, but say them absolutely straight. And that's what the Zucker's Did so well is that their
4: imitators did not do well,
3: right?
1: And and what's always scary, well, and that happened with Leslie Nielsen. He started to realize he was funny, and once he did that, (laughs) it was no longer funny. He was playing it for the laughs.
0: Well, also I don't think he was getting. See him on an episode of. I just saw him on an episode of Hawaii Five O uh from years ago i mean i am obsessed with that show the old one you know and i every, almost every night i will watch an episode but uh and i love to see the old guest stars yes. and the different people that come mm-hmm. on but he was on it and he he was amazing like he was great that guy is such a he was such a great actor especially he was just straight and to the point and i just i don't know love that guy
3: the titles for uh that always used to crack me up because the characters names were like Dan Jones as Bob Smith, and, oh,
4: yeah.
3: and, and, and Zulu as Como, right?
4: Yeah. You know? Dan, Kim, Kim, what was it? Kim Fong as Chin Ho. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then there was one person
3: that had one name. You know? Zulu,
4: right? Zulu, yeah. But,
3: but he played Kona or That's something.
0: That's right. Uh, tra- yeah, Kona. Yeah. I'm in season eight. He's not on air
1: anymore. And, and
3: so
0: a, a former guest of this show, Gavin
1: McCloud was on Hawaii 5 oh, wow. yeah. it was big, big chicken, chicken.
4: <laughs> big, chicken. <laughs> big chicken he was a drug dealer
3: Wow
0: <laughs> and how about that Hawaii Five O theme song Mike oh it's the it's the best come on well just theme songs in general from that era were were just so amazing and brave and just in your face and the best you can even imagine you know well they they uh, their
3: goal was to burrow into your brain permanently yeah. and they succeeded and they succeeded. Well, and
0: it was like, I remember on The Incredibles, Brad saying, you know, when this movie's over, I want our theme playing and I want kids screaming and running from the theater singing this song. And, and what he was asking for was basically what we grew up with was all of that great stuff that we grew up with and right. the way that we were treated uh musically we were given these incredible melodies to 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 go even mission impossible lalo and
4: mancini lalo and, Schiffer, and all yeah. those guys and john williams I was, oh. you know doing research for this sh- particular show was fun because i got to sit and listen we we're gonna i was gonna ask you about them i got to listen to john williams lost in space themes and the time tunnel oh, yeah. and earl The Mods- no, time tunnel we were just Mods- the time swat. tunnel
3: is the greatest
0: fantastic yeah
4: Two American scientists are lost in the swirling maze of past and future ages during the first experiments on America's greatest and most secret project, the Time Tower. <laughs> And Land of yeah. the Giants, John Williams' Land of the Giants, and uh, our, what is so Earl Hagan's um, uh, Mod Squad? They're just there. Th- so when yeah. you guys sat down initially, and had uh, initial conversations about the incredible's music. I-, I assume this is how the conversation went. A, li- a a little bit of this, a little bit of that the, you know, the, the does does Brad say these are the things in
0: my head? Well, I Well, we talked about the things that we loved and we talked about I mean,
3: one of our and I just said it's brassy, it should be brassy. The people don't use brass in in, in that way anymore yeah. and and you know, they try to tuck it in and it's like it's it's not an instrument that you should tuck. You should like put it out front and, and you know, right. he was, Michael got it instantly, you know.
0: I loved all that stuff growing up. So for me, it was just the biggest playground. So I was able to just write a love letter to all of the people who I, I wanted to thank for, for entertaining me all these years, you know, and all of those themes. And, you know, this was a big blender of all of that, you know, just my inspiration, so. I remember when I was a kid, my mother used to call me
1: in when, when Perry Mason would come on, because I really enjoyed the theme music. It's there the greatest. There you go. You know, it yeah. sets the table. How about
0: that Quincy Jones theme from Ironside? Oh, yes. Right. Who wrote that one? <laughs> Wasn't it Quincy Jones? Oh, did he do that one? I think. I know. What about Sanford and Son? That's another great one. Yeah, right. Right, right, right. right. And, and, and the believe...
1: Munsters is a great theme. Oh, I never so knew good. that Jack
4: Marshall, who wrote the Munsters theme, was Frank Marshall's dad.
3: Wow, I didn't know that till this second.
4: I didn't know that.
3: It's, I, 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 know I that. hope it's
4: true. what else did he write? I hope it's true. I read it, I read it online. It could be bullshit, but we're going to hope it's true.
1: What, what else did he write? We should ask him. On this podcast, we once played the lyrics to one of the greatest theme music ever, the Odd Couple theme which right. is classic, classic theme music. Neil Hefty. Yeah, uh, yeah Neil Hefty was uh, he, he, the catchiest. They immediately
3: brought and in. And since let's l- go with this Frank Marshall thing, he invented the Hefty bag, too. I'm not sure of that. <laughs> but, uh. <laughs> I
0: just I just emailed him and asked him if his father was a composer. I don't know. We'll see if he gets. I back hope to I'm us not wrong. If I am, what the hell? It's on the internet. Yeah, we'll you can't trust him. the internet. I, I, but it's a great. It's I did a- say my my friend Frank uh, Santo Padre f- swears that your dad was a composer. Yeah, Is this true? He can take it out on me if I'm wrong.
4: Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, we're gonna take a break right here because once again, we have an embarrassment of riches and too much great content to cram into one show so we're going to do this in two parts stay tuned for part two next week and it's a good one with Oscar winners Brad Bird and Michael Giacchino we'll see you then Transmission Complete
1: This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs>